Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. John Grant, our guest today, is a legal operations strategist who works with law firms and legal teams to improve their capacity and productivity. A fourth-generation lawyer, John was in the technology industry for nearly a decade before he entered the legal profession. As an attorney, he started as an in-house counsel and in legal operations roles before founding Agile Professionals, LLC in 2014. As a consultant, he helps legal professionals develop legal services that are profitable, scalable, and sustainable for themselves as well as the communities they serve. Interestingly, John is also board president of the Commons Law Center, a nonprofit law firm providing affordable legal services to those in Oregon who make up to 400% of the federal poverty level. Both Agile Professionals and the Commons Law Center incorporate Kanban, a methodology that aims to improve efficiency and achieve excellent client value in production processes by visualizing workflows. I caught up to John and we talked about what he learned from working in tech, the need for human connection in the A to J space, applying Kanban principles to legal organizations, and how he helps attorneys with overwhelming workloads. It was a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening in. John, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. I'm excited to be on your podcast. Yeah. So let's start. You're the founder of Agile Professionals, and you also work with the Commons Law Center. I know we want to spend most of our time talking about those those activities, particularly your use of Kanban and other technologies for process improvement. But let's go a little bit in the way back machine. <laughs> okay. Being a lawyer runs in your family. It does. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm. I'm a fourth generation lawyer down my mom's side, you know, through through multiple family members. But I, I could actually count four generations back. There was a lawyer in my family on the dad's side, too. So it's it's definitely uh, something of a family uh, affliction. I'm not sure. <laughs> affliction may be the right term. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't immediately go to law school. I didn't. You worked in the tech industry for a while. Yeah. You know, I mean, one, one of the things I think about growing up in, in a, you know, I mean, a, a, just naturally, I didn't necessarily want to do what everyone else in my family was doing. A little rebellion is good. Yeah. And so uh, when I got done with my undergrad, I, I literally went on a road trip to pick a place to live. And in the mid 1990s, that was Seattle, Washington. Hands down, it was the coolest place on the planet. And uh, I wound up working for a little startup. I was uh, just over the 100th employee at a place called Photodisc, which, as you might imagine, our uh, product was selling photography on CD. And uh, this was... Um, Probably not around now. Well, uh, they are around because they merged with a, a company called Getty Images. And oh. uh, Photodisc, in fact, laid the groundwork for the technology that allowed Getty Images to disrupt and then reconsolidate the entire stock photography industry around itself. Well, that's interesting. So my sort of early career was very much a story of a successful disruptive innovation story, although I don't even think we were using the term disruptive innovation back then. But it was the classic 
sort of innovators dilemma situation where we had at, at Photodisk, we had a slightly lower quality product, right? The digitized photography that was available then wasn't as high quality as the scans you could get or the, the quality you would get off of the film that was the standard medium of the time. Yet we provided a vastly superior customer experience because we were able to deliver more product more quickly. And it was through initially that improvement of the, the customer experience that allowed us to gain market share and obviously gain the attention of Getty. And they have a little bit of resources in the Getty family. So they were able to, to well, use that yeah. technology <laughs> right, to basically acquire other photography libraries and use what we'd learned at Photodesk about uh, not just how to digitize, but really how to rethink the entire product and customer lifespan, because it was very different than in a world where, you know, pieces of celluloid were getting sent through the mail or through FedEx. And even though FedEx was very fast at the time, we could still deliver a high res image, you know, over a 14.4 modem significantly faster than FedEx could do the same thing. So you're, you're in this tech world in Seattle, which is sort of the hotbed of innovation, both now and certainly at the time. Right. And you decided to go to law school. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that was partly, uh, you know, a few different things coming into play. Part of it, frankly, was Getty was, was a great experience for me, but I was young and I think I didn't realize at the time how not repeatable that process is or how unusual it was to sort of be on. It was the dot com boom era. So we all thought that these rocket ship rides were just going to be a dime a dozen. And of course, they're not. And so when Getty was going through this process of disrupting and, and really taking over the industry, it was a lot of fun. When it got to the next sort of phase of their maturity and evolution, where now they had to defend this newly acquired turf, it was less exciting for me at the time. I actually think it still is a pretty interesting problem to solve. And I had some friends that had gone to law school and obviously a lot of family members uh, who were lawyers. And so I actually took the LSAT as a plan B. And um, I think the legal world is uh, replete with people that have entered it sort of through that side door. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's right. What was plan A out of curiosity? Plan A was was to catch on with another um, startup, right? I, I thought, and I did do some work with a few different startups. None of them had obviously nearly the potential that Photodisc slash Getty did. And uh, as best as I can tell, none of them is still around <laughs> for, for, for long, yeah. long years. Yeah, we all thought we were going to catch lightning in a bottle was an easy thing back in the dot-com era. Yeah, you bet. So as you look back on it in your in your current work now in trying to rethink process and process improvement, what did you learn from that experience, that, that tech experience that's applicable to your work now? Yeah, the thing that especially as I've reflected on it, you know, for it's it's been well over 20 years now since that experience and the technology. I mean, we thought of ourselves as a technology company and the technology was certainly important. But it was what the technology was in service of that was most important. And, you know, especially, I mean, both with the early days of Photodesk and then once we had combined with Getty Images, we had really amazing leadership that was very clear eyed that technology for technology's sake, we, we weren't just trying to make processes more efficient. We weren't trying to just deliver product faster. We were trying to create a superior client experience and a superior customer experience. And it was really in service of what are the things that our customers want? What do they need? 
What are the pains they're feeling in their day-to-day lives? And how can we address that both with technology and through process innovation and even, you know, even legal innovation at the time? Because a lot of what Getty did, especially in the early days with Photodisc, is we changed the dominant model for licensing photography. We came up with what was called the royalty-free model. And it was very much a sort of you know, yin and yang, the licensing model and the, the delivery model went, you know, they, they had to evolve together. There was no reason to have a royalty-free license when there was a one-to-one delivery model. But once we did have this sort of one-to-many delivery model of sending the photos over CD, we had to change our, our assumptions about how we were going to have a business model around this thing. And so that's the lesson that has certainly sat with me. And, and you know, as we, I'm sure, are about to pivot to the legal industry is one that is very much in the forefront of my mind as we're, you know, sitting at the precipice of this technology innovation powered by AI and, and large language models and all the rest. What are the assumptions we're making in the legal industry about how we package and deliver our services and how is technology change going to necessitate rethinking that model or those models? Yeah, let, let, let's stick on that because you wrote an interesting post on LinkedIn the other day following your tenants at Codex. Mm-hmm about concerns with large language models, NLP technologies. For listeners that may not have read that post, sort of share some of those concerns. I I promise we're going to get to agile professionals and and comment along. Yeah, of course. Well, and this is part of what I do, right? So in in terms of my coaching consulting approach with the, the teams I work with, it's very much about trying to take the step back and have a big picture view and really as much as I can, a systems thinking view to what's going on, you know, in the broader world, but also how it's going to impact specific corners of the legal industry. And one of the corners I care about a lot is access to justice. And I can't remember, I posted a couple of things on LinkedIn, but one of them had to do where there's a lot of excitement around the potential for AI powered tools to help close the access to justice gap because it will decrease barriers to entry for people getting into the the legal system. And I have a few thoughts on that. I mean, number one, I'm not sure that that it all by itself it's true. Um, one of the things I've learned through my work at the Commons Law Center and elsewhere is that people really do crave a human connection when they're dealing with complex problems and I had an interesting chat. Tom Martin of Lodroid was sitting next to me at the table. And, you know, he's, of course, very hopeful. And, you know, in the long term, he might be right that AI can produce a sort of user experience to people that are using these tools that will approximate the human connection. But I think that's something that's going to take longer than a lot of folks think. So that's that's one concern. Another concern is basically a, a theory of constraints problem, which is if AI is capable of increasing access to legal systems and administrative systems. And, you know, let's just say it's it's court filings for family law cases, just an example, because that's something um, we do a lot at the Commons Law Center. If more people are able to file cases, but there's a bottleneck somewhere downstream in the court system in the processing of those cases, then, you know, something that I'm sure you know from, from your lean background increasing throughput at a workflow stage that is upstream of the bottleneck will actually increase pressure on the bottleneck and cause systems to slow down even further. And so one of the things I worry about there is that, again, if if we have all of a sudden more immigration applications, more patent and trademark applications, more all of the things that are that are going into these judicial and administrative systems, 
and those agencies or those courts aren't ready for the increased demand, then the system's going to slow down for everybody. And that's not going to be a great experience. Yeah, let, let's let's pull on both of those threads for a minute because you make some interesting points. Let, let's stick with the process point because I do think that one of the challenges I have found is this failure to look at the whole system because it's, right. it's, it's daunting to look at it. I, you know, Very much you so. say, okay, we can increase the point of access. We can increase that, eliminate that bottleneck. But how do we deal with the reality of limited judges, limited courts, limited process points? Right. No, and, and it's, you know, it's classic Deming, W. Edwards Deming. It's classic theory of constraints, Eli Goldratt, right? It's right. I have an unwritten blog post rattling around in my head around how GPT technology could, in a lot of legal workflows, could very much be the pink robot from Goldratt's The Goal, right? And the plot driver <laughs> of that story was everyone was so excited that they had this new machine that was going to increase the throughput of the factory. And yet all it did was increase the amount of unfinished work sitting around the factory floor because you still needed to do quality assurance on the output of that machine. You still needed to create other components that were going to link up with the parts that that machine could do. And then there still was a final assembly and delivery phase, and none of those things in the factory floor could keep up. And so the fact that the pink machine was faster was irrelevant to the overall system throughput. And in fact, they didn't. It, it actually created a lot of waste. Right. Unless you solve the last mile problem, you're not helping things a whole lot. Exactly. Well, let's pick up on the first point you said, because I think it's an interesting point as we talk about this technology and the implications of it. It doesn't replace human empathy. And No, not yet. <laughs> not, not yet. Maybe it will someday. <laughs> Maybe someday. That terrifies me to think about that. But, but, <laughs> yeah, but, me, me too. But not, but not yet. And so in the A&J space, you have a lot of people that are confronting the legal system, many for the first time. Mm-hmm. And... They have to be scared, angry, frightened. All I assume you must deal with the gamut of human emotions. A, a whole bundle of, yeah, I always wrap it up in the FUD acronym, which is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. But you're right. There's a lot. There's anger. There's, there's frustration. There's all sorts of things that come into play. Do you see this technology combining with people as opposed to standing alone in the AJ space? Do you see it empowering the humans you have working at the Commons Law Center? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that's the vision, right? That, and that's certainly what we're trying to work towards. And we're doing it already without technology or without, without AI technology. So, you know, one of the things about the Commons Law Center is that all of our matter management and actually all of our backend project management is all handled through Kanban systems. And so each practice group has a visual Kanban board. We use a tool called Kanbanize, but there's, there's many that work. Okay, and, hang on. For our listeners that may not know Kanban, may not know the terms, give us the primer. Sure. Okay. Kanban is, um, it's actually one of the problems with the word Kanban or Kanban, as you said. I don't, you're in the Midwest, I think. And so it doesn't, I, I don't know which is the proper translation. I learned it as Kanban. I, I don't know either. So I apologize if I got it wrong. No, that's okay. I say it both ways too, because everyone says it both ways. Uh, and I've heard the folks from what I think of as Kanban University call themselves Kanban University. So Kanban is a system. It shows up in a few different places. The literal translation is sign or card or signal. As I understand it, I don't speak Japanese. So this is what I've been told. 
there are manifestations of Kanban that come out of lean and lean manufacturing Toyota way that has to do with effectively inventory control. And so I sometimes will tell people, you know, if you're ever at the grocery store and you're getting a receipt and it's got that pink stripe on it, that's a visual Kanban. It's a signal to let the cashier know that you're running out of receipt tape and you need to replace it. And the lean world is full of examples of that. There's what I sometimes call industrial Kleenex, where you'll be pulling them out of the box and it's white, 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 white. And then the last five are beige. And again, that's a signal to the housekeeping that, oh, there's a beige one at the top. That means this box is almost empty. Kanban boards were adopted by practitioners of agile methodologies back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it was an interesting use of Kanban boards because it effectively was a way to make otherwise invisible knowledge work look like something. So I I sometimes talk about a Kanban board as a visual fiction that allows us to see knowledge work in ways that it's not inherently visible, right? It, It usually is either between our ears or on our glowing rectangles, and we don't have a way to perceive it. And we especially don't have a way to perceive the process for creating it. And so when we talk about the Kanban methodology and and as it comes out of Agile, the Kanban board is actually making two things visible or two sets of things visible. One of them is the work that is within a particular team or practice group, business, whatever it happens to be. And the work is represented by cards on the board. And that can be sticky notes on a wall in a physical environment, although the far more common thing today is to have it be virtual cards on a tool of some sort. But the other thing that you're making visible with the Kanban method is the workflow and making the workflow visible in some ways, certainly over the longer terms, I think is the more impactful thing between the two. When I'm working with newer teams and we make the work visible, that is always sort of an amazing aha moment at first where they go, holy cow, that is a lot of things I'm keeping track of. Right. And those are are, our mental balls that they've been juggling this whole time. And they may have spreadsheets or other things, but there's something different about seeing it, you know, represented in a way that, yeah, this this is the work of my practice. But it's the workflow that's really interesting. And part of what I like about the Kanban methodology, and, and this is part of how we're using it at the commons to sort of tie it back to that, is that, yes, the cases are represented by cards. Uh, we actually have a two-level board. So the cases, we have what I think of as a slow flow board, which is managing things at the matter level, and then a fast flow board, which is managing things at the task level. And they're related. There's a parent-child relationship between the matters and the tasks, and we can sort of see that work moving very quickly. The next phase of the Kanban methodology and where it starts to get really, well, and I say phase, it doesn't necessarily have to be linear, but one of the things that I will do when I'm working with teams is limit work in progress. And in the lean, you know, as you know, in the lean agile world, we mean whip or work in progress to mean anything that is started, but not finished yet, which is slightly different than how a lot of law firms use whip in a very specific financial way to mean, you know, work, work that you've done, but haven't built yet. But both of those are whip. It's just lawyer whip is a narrow definition and process whip is a much broader definition. So, but it's that limiting work and process that winds up being the most impactful thing. And so what that helps tell us at the commons level is what is our capacity for doing work, for taking on matters, for taking on tasks? How are we applying our resource mix to that current demand that we have? And then that helps us govern our intake and outreach and other things so that at no time are we putting too much work into the system such that everything slows down. So this gets back to the systems thinking that I was talking about with 
chat GPT or AI, other AI is that, you know, in the lean agile world, Little's law tells us that the average amount of time it takes to complete a widget is directly proportional to the number, total number of widgets that are in process in your system. And so the more work in progress you have open, the slower it's going to be for any one of those tasks to get done. Right. So let's stick with the commons for a minute. Sure. First, tell our audience a little bit about what the mission of commons is. And also, you've got a unique way of looking at it where you, you're not taking life cycle matters. You're taking right. specific pieces. And then maybe from there, you could give us a case example of how you use this Kanban methodology to speed the efficiency of the team. Sure. So uh, so the Commons Law Center is a, a nonprofit law firm uh, that covers all of Oregon now. And we founded ourselves as a modest means program, which uh, we think of very specifically as covering 125% up to 400% of the federal poverty level. So those of anyone in the access to justice space knows that legal aid caps out at 125% of the poverty level. And I just heard Jim Sandman talk about what that means. I, I think it's less than $20,000 a year for a single person as 125%. So really low income in order to qualify for legal aid. And yet that doesn't mean that, you know, once you're obviously over that, that hump doesn't mean you can afford a lawyer. And so we're trying to serve the, the underserved population that legal aid isn't even legally allowed to help. One of the things that's interesting is we founded ourselves as a modest means program. We still find, and this has been consistent for five years now, about 60% of our demand comes from people who are legal aid qualified, but legal aid doesn't have the resources and winds up turning them away. So it is a huge, huge problem. We currently are doing four areas of law. So uh, family law has been a very consistent part of our practice from the start. We also do estate planning and probate. Um, one of the things we've learned is that asset preservation is one of the best ways to help people that are of limited means at least hang on to the means that they have. And then we recently, during the pandemic, stood up an eviction defense program. And so we're also doing eviction defense across all counties in Oregon right now. So you're doing great work. And you're continuing to increase the efficiency at which you're doing the work. So you're able to help more humans, which is the goal to it, with an existing base. Right. So connect the Kanban to these great results you're achieving. Sure. So one of the things we learned, and this actually ties directly back to my Giddy Images and Photodis experience, right, is that we we initially made the assumption that a lot of programs do that we would simply provide full scope family law and other services on a sliding scale basis to this population and that we would try to use technology to drive cost out of the delivery of that work. And that worked a little bit, but it turns out that the biggest cost in providing that work is just the human employee cost, right? The, the time it takes to have a lawyer, a paralegal, whoever it happens to be uh, on the other side or on our side delivering that work. And so there wasn't really a lot that technology by itself could wring out of the cost side of, of doing that work in a way. And, and basically what we found was our margins were just incredibly thin. And so any little thing that upset the apple cart put our profitability at risk. And, and while we are a nonprofit, part of our model is that we want to be using our philanthropic revenue to stand up programs that will become self-sustaining. And we see ourselves 
very much as a training ground and as a testing ground for legal business model innovation so that people that come through our program are going to be able to use what they learn to go launch successful practices for themselves, ideally continuing to serve modest means communities, at least in part along the way. So what we learned, especially in our family law program, is that, well, we challenged an assumption, I guess, and, and, and we ran some experiments around this, which is the question we asked is, do people need end-to-end full-scope legal help, or are there ways that we could provide targeted services to people in a manner that is empowering to them and useful and, and a good value for their limited ability to spend money and get them better than they would be with no legal help, even if it's maybe not quite as good as they might have been with full scope help. What we've learned has been really fascinating, which is that this um, and so the, the, the way that manifests and I'll sorry, I'll get, I'll get to, to what we've learned in a second. But we initially assumed that that would be around document drafting and provision and that people would want help drafting the legal documents. We learned that from a consumer standpoint, there wasn't a lot of demand for that work. And so even though we as lawyers knew that they needed that kind of help, that wasn't necessarily what people wanted. And I think to get to the point that you made earlier, people are experiencing a lot of confusion and emotion and uncertainty when they're having legal problems like this. And so really what they wanted more than anything was to talk to a lawyer. And so we eventually began and Christine Zenthoffer, our family law director, was instrumental in, in getting this going. She gets a lot of the credit. We converted a bunch of our work to more of a legal coaching paradigm. And so now how we're working with people and one of the things that we also learned in this process is that the demand people's desire to get help is very much tied to events in their case not documents they need. And so needing to respond to a divorce filing is a great event or needing to make a divorce filing is an event. Initial disclosures is an event. And then certainly hearings, anything that involves a court or a judge, they is something that creates a lot of uncertainty. And so we now have ways for people to hire us to you know, spend a chunk of time. And it's usually anywhere from half hour to two hours to understand their situation a little bit and then give them very targeted coaching and advice about what to do next. But then they would go and actually do the thing. So we're not appearing in hearings on their behalf for these coaching clients. We're not, sometimes we're not even drafting the documents. Sometimes we are and sometimes we aren't. Um, and that's sort of an add-on service that people can decide. One of the things that's been really interesting, and we don't have great long-term data around this, but the early sort of early returns indicate that People who have used our help for legal coaching ahead of a hearing or ahead of a trial have a very good success rate in that trial, even if they're going up against a party that has a lawyer on the other side. Huh, that's interesting. And, you know, again, we, we haven't fully closed the loop. And one of the hard things in a resource constrained organization is you don't necessarily have the resources to go get all the feedback and, and data that you'd like. But some of the early indications are that our focus is very much on personal empowerment. And so we're trying to educate people so they feel empowered to represent themselves in a way that it's going to be effective in that courtroom situation. And it seems to be working. The, the feedback we get from clients is that they felt very ready for the hearings of the trials that they wound up attending, that they felt understood by the judge because they were able to communicate in a way that the, the judge was expecting. And they felt like the proceedings overall were fair. 
And if you look at any of the data for people who are unrepresented, that is not the trend, right? Unrepresented people tend to have very low confidence and a, a poor experience with the overall system. So again, we don't have hard data, so I don't want to oversell it, but the early returns are good. But it sounds very promising. That's great. That's great. We've only got a few minutes left, John. And I don't, don't want to let you go without talking about your business business, Agile Professionals. Tell us a little bit about what you do there and sort of your philosophy of transformation and change. Yeah. So I work with law firms, although I, I you know, law firms and legal teams. And personally, I'm sort of a big believer in the, I think it's a Jeff Bezos attributed the two pizza team from Amazon. I found that the way I work and the tools and methodologies I use are really best for teams that are sort of at least two or three people. I mean, if you're smaller than two, you're not a team, but it really shines in about the, let's say, five to 12 person team size. Once you get bigger than 12, then it starts to get a little unruly again. It's not really a team there either. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it can be. But the trick that I found, and, and this has been a big part, so I, and, and we missed the part of my career path where I, so I went to law school, I actually went back to Getty as in-house counsel for a little while. And it was during that time that they had pivoted from more of a waterfall project approach to software development to an agile software approach. And, and I remember at the time thinking, God, there's got to be something in this agile thing that will be useful for lawyers. But I, I was too busy learning how to be a lawyer at the time to actually sort of pull that thread. But it obviously never left me. And so really for almost 10 years now, I've been wrestling with that problem and trying to reach into the world of Agile, which of course takes me into the world of Lean and Theory of Constraints and, and Deming and all these things I've talked about already to find the things that will help make legal teams work better. And the number one thing, that sort of the, the top result that uh, usually happens after I work with a team for a month or two is a relief from overburden, a relief from that feeling of overburden. The, the folks on the team aren't so overwhelmed with the volume of work that they're being asked to produce. Which is a pretty amazing result. It is. I mean, it, it's borderline magical to watch it happen. And even though I, I expect it to happen now when I work with a new team, uh, you know, I'm obviously very much hoping and they're hoping that it's going to happen. But to go through the steps of the Kanban methodology and, you know, assuming I've got willing participants, you know, and I'm not saying that it relieves all of their overburden, but they begin to feel relief. And that beginning is the beginning of buy-in to the methodology, of course. And it's what makes folks willing to want to continue and, and try to get things further down the road. And it's really fascinating. I mean, the couple of the teams that I've been working with the longest, both are estate planning and administration firms. One of them in particular, we've done some really fascinating work over the last year. And again, this is, I've been working with them for more than five years now. And so initially it was very much part of relieving overburden. Eventually it became some business model innovation within their estate planning practice. They switched from a primarily hourly based program to a primarily flat fee program. And the economics just made, made sense once we were making things more efficient in their practice. We've now been in the process of taking the trust administration process to a flat fee. And that's been really interesting because uh, th this is a, a team that does very high-end, complex trust administration for high net worth individuals in California. And I'm not sure that there's a place in the world that is more complex to be a high net worth individual than California. I was going to say, I can't think of anything more complicated than that scenario. Yeah. And we've recently converted that to a flat fee program. 
And it took years uh, and it took years of study and data and talking with customers and really trying to your clients, trying to really understand what their drivers were. And what was great and what's been so you know, just amazing to work with this client on is to really redesign the internal process through the lens of the client experience. And so everything that we do has been grounded in what is the particular pain point that the client is experiencing, not just overall in the trust administration, but within this particular deliverable that we have to do, you know, whatever the TPS report that we need to file at the time happens to be, how can we tie that back to customer value? Uh, and how do we communicate that value and make sure that our processes and systems and deliverables are very specifically designed, not just to tick the legal box, which we know needs to happen, but to do it in a way that the client understands that, oh, this is actually really valuable to me as we're going through. Yeah. That tying back to the perception is, is key, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a thing that I think so many, it's, it's really easy to miss. And, you know, I don't, I don't mean to say it in a way that is blaming the lawyers and law firms that aren't quite doing that yet, because I think they all have the potential to be doing it. But we're just taught to be such technicians, I think, starting in law school. And I think, you know, depending on where people start, I think in a lot of the the early career experiences that a lot of lawyers have, we're sort of given high volume of, of relatively low value work. And it teaches us to just sort of be box tickers. And it, it takes a real mindset shift to sort of take that step or two back and really try to to see things through the lens of the client experience. Absolutely. Well, John, you're doing some really interesting, incredible things. Thanks for taking the time to, to share them with us. Yeah, no, it's a lot a lot to get in in half an hour. We bounced around the, the just the tops of a lot of different things, but I, I'm, uh, I, I'm always excited about all of them. So. Yeah, no, we did bounce around a lot. We'll have to have you back on the podcast and do a deep dive and we'll pick one and do a deep dive into it next time. Perfect, I'd love that. Okay. Great. John, take care. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.